True Gay Crime contains coarse language, adult themes, and content that is violent and disturbing. If at any time you feel you need help, please refer to the toll-free crisis lines in the show notes. Welcome to another episode of True Gay Crime. I'm your host, Patrick Morano, and on today's episode, we cover the collector, Robert Berdella. He's a man who owned an antique shop full of international oddities, who injected young men with drugs to rape torture and kill them just another warning this one is a bit gruesome and a little bit graphic but first as always if you're listening on apple podcast just a quick reminder you can rate and review true gay crime it helps me out content wise and it tells apple to spread true gay crime love into the podcast universe and if you're really loving my stuff, why not consider supporting the podcast by becoming a patron? Patrons of the show have perks like early access, bonus episodes, behind-the-scenes content, and more. You'll find a link in the show notes of this episode. Okay, so, to put us in the mindset of the time, space, reality of this story, we have to go back, 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 back to the 80s. Oh yeah, big hair electric blue eyeshadow, frosted lips, shoulder pads. Um, so the crimes spanned from like 1984 to 1988. So let's just pick a couple of the years. And there in 1984, we're talking music. We're talking Born in the USA, Bruce Springsteen. We're talking Purple Rain, Prince, who has three songs in the top 10, which is insane. Um Little side note, I went to see Prince here in Toronto, and I, it's not that I wasn't a fan, I just didn't know much about him musically, I didn't follow him musically before, and we just had tickets to go see him, best concert, it was amazing, I totally get why he was as big as he was. Time after time, Cindy Lauper, that is one of the biggest gay not just gay, just biggest songs It that just never gets old and never goes out of style. I hear it all the time. You hear it in movies, in TV shows. You hear it at Pride every year. It's always the biggest anthem song. And I love it to death. Okay, Thriller, Michael Jackson. O-M-G. As somebody who is a true crime fan, as somebody who is a horror fan... When Thriller came out, what a dream. Oh my God. Actually, I was so young that my parents didn't let me um, watch the video. But I saw the album, like I, I, the album cover, and he's in white. And, and I knew that that was like the Thriller album, and the song was on the record. Like it's a, it was literally a record. And I remember catching a glimpse of it on the TV downstairs, and it was just like, uh, dream. So I was so excited when I finally got to see the whole uh, video for Thriller. And then of course, we can't talk about 1984 without and music and not talk about Madonna. Borderline. Feels like I'm going to lose my mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't have pitch or tone and I very flat, but Madonna. Borderline. Who? Madonna. She's bitch. Bitch, she's Madonna. Okay. 1986. Okay, let's move from music. Okay, now, now we have sort of a mind set around music, where we are musically. 1986, a couple of big disasters happened. Um, Chernobyl. Remember that? Chernobyl. That was a bad one. 
Um, that affected not just Chernobyl and the Soviets at the time. This is like floated up into the atmosphere, went all the way to like Finland and Sweden. And it was just the cleanup went on and on. Hundreds of thousands of people were dispersed. I mean, this was one of the biggest disasters in modern history. Um, followed the same year with the Challenger shuttle exploding. Do you remember that? I was, again, I was young and I remember looking at the TV and I remember seeing, I think they interrupted like Thundercats or something I was watching. And you could see like the shuttle going up and then they were just, it was on replay. It was just on repeat. They just kept repeating that footage of like this shuttle exploding. And I was like, <gasps> and it seared. In, you know, when you're like, people ask you, where were you when? Like, I remember when Princess Diana died where I was. Um, you know, I remember where I was when Whitney Houston, I got the news about Whitney Houston. I re you know what I mean? Like there's things you just remember. I remember the Twin Towers, obviously, where I was. This was one of those things. I remember exactly. I was in the basement of like my babysitter's house and they kept replaying it on the T and it's like seared into my brain. It was so traumatizing. That's 1986. Also in 1986, the average income of a person was $22,000. This is US, I believe. And rent was on average, $385 a month. God. <laughs> Imagine it was still that much. I mean, I recently, I mean, I was recently, I mean, quickly relocated and I ended up, you know, with uh, not wanting to spend a lot. So I needed an apartment quick and I had some connections and I ended up in this tiny, in Toronto, Toronto's expensive though, but this tiny studio, like, just, I mean, I'm thankful that it was there and I was able to stay there and I, and I love the landlady so much, uh, Francine, shout out to Francine if you're listening. Um, but even that, I mean, it was a tiny little shithole. It was like $800 for that. So imagine what you could get for $800 a month in 1986. Okay. And we can't talk about 1986 either without bringing up Oprah Winfrey because this bitch she had her local show in Chicago and she went national 1986 she signed her syndication deal and she went national and obviously you know it soon became the highest rated talk show in the US it aired for 25 seasons it won over 45 daytime Emmy awards I mean that seems like too many I mean, I know you were on forever, but even if you won like one award per year or season, that would have been 25 awards. So how did you win 45 daytime Emmy awards? That means she was picking up multiple awards per year. I wonder if there's a year where she didn't win anything and she was like, fuck you. I mean, at some point it gets a little bit like, oh, thanks guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. I mean, the first one, you're like, wow, oh my God, I want to know. The second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. I mean, at some point you just expect it, right? If you don't win, you're kind of like big middle finger, you know? Okay, so that's it. We're in the 80s. We're in the mid 80s. Are you there? Have you teased out your hair? Do you have a perm? Okay, the sources for... um for this story. Uh, of course, Wikipedia, Murderpedia was very extensive. Criminalminds.fandom.com. So without further ado, here is the gruesome and graphic tale of the Kansas City butcher, Robert Berdella. 
Christopher Bryson lay on the dirty mattress. His hands were bound with rope, and he strained to hear if his captor was lurking around the house someplace. But all he could hear was his heart beating loudly in his ears. How long had he been held captive, raped, tortured? He knew he wouldn't last much longer. He had to make a move. Because Chris had gained his captor's trust, he was allowed to hold a remote control for the TV between his knees with his hands. He dropped the remote, reached for the book of matches, another gift for good behavior so he could enjoy a cigarette. He pulled and pulled at the rope, binding his hands until it loosened, and he had one hand free. The wrist scarred with rope burn. He knew if his captor walked in the room at this exact moment, he would torture him to death for sure. Chris was past the point of no return. He had to work fast. With his free hand, he reached for the matchbook, struck the pack, and burned the rest of the rope off his limbs. Free from the prison bed and completely naked except for a dog collar, Chris ran to the window and looked outside. They were upstairs, two floors up. He didn't care. This was his only chance. It was do or die. He smashed the window glass with his elbow, blood trickling down his arm, and shimmied up to the windowsill. Looking down, he knew the jump was too far not to be hurt on impact, but no pain could compare to what he had been subjected to these past days. He jumped from the window and landed with a crack. It was his foot, but adrenaline took over and Chris hobbled over to the nearest neighbor, calling out for help. On the neighbor's porch, Chris wailed and cried until the neighbor came out. Scared, they didn't let the bleeding naked man into the house, but they did call 911. What monster would hold someone against their will, torture, and rape them. His name was Robert Andrew Bardella Jr., and he was born January 31st, 1949 in Siahoga Falls, Ohio. Ohio, Something like that. It's a quiet suburb of Cleveland. The eldest of two sons of Robert Bardella Sr., who worked for Ford and Mary Bardella, a housewife. Berdella's father was a Catholic Italian, and he raised his family in a deeply religious household. They regularly attend Mass, and both sons regularly attend religious education courses. Which, I don't know what the fuck that is. Religion education sounds very culty. As a child, Berdella was intelligent, he was a loner, and he rarely played outside the home. He had no friends to come visit him, as is the case with many of these psychos. Um, He had a speech impediment and wore thick glasses from the age of five because he was nearsighted. He also had high blood pressure and he was on several medications. Berdella was unathletic, unlike his brother Daniel, who was good at tons of sports. And of course, Berdella's father valued sports and physical education. So his son's lack of interest in sports was a sign of failure. And he often compared him unfavorably with his younger brother. Berdella's father physically and emotionally abused his children, and he beat them with a leather strap. Does that ever work for anyone? I mean, long term, does that ever, you know, have good results? Berdella performed well academically, though teachers often found him difficult to teach. He was aloof, and he was the recipient of bullying by the other students. So because of this, as a child, he seldom socialized in social activities at school with his peers. When he hit puberty, he discovered he's gay. So initially, it's a guarded secret. He's not open about his sexuality for years into his 20s. Nonetheless, in his early teens, he briefly has a girlfriend who didn't. And about this time, Berdella starts throwing up walls to protect himself. He becomes rude and condescending, especially towards women. And he learns to cook and he learns about art. Okay, 
On Christmas Day, 1965, the Berdella family drove to Canton, Ohio to visit relatives, and that's the evening that Berdella's father has a heart attack, and he dies at 39 years of age. In the same year, Berdella sees a film adaptation of the John Fowles book called The Collector. The plot of the movie, okay, get get this. The plot of the movie revolves around a man who stalks and abducts a young woman he finds attractive. He holds her captive in his windowless stone basement, viewing her as little more than an attractive specimen. And after several weeks, the woman dies of an illness despite his efforts to try to keep her alive. So Berdella later states that that movie had formed a lasting impression on him. You know, when people are like, oh, movies don't make monsters or, you know, somebody doesn't watch a movie and then becomes a serial killer because they were influenced by that movie. But it's almost like Berdella was inspired by this movie. Of course, who can take anything that this asshole has to say uh, for face value because he's a lying narcissist, as we'll find out. Okay, then. So his okay. so his dad is dead. Right. So his mom remarries and he sees this as a total betrayal towards his father. He hates women at this point. He's just a woman hater. Uh, He withdraws. He loses himself in his hobbies like painting and stamp and coin collecting and writing to foreign pen pals in countries such as Vietnam and Burma. And these pen pals would send him stamps for his collection and photographs of, um, you know, mythical historical icons and ancient cultures, architecture, blah, blah, blah. So little antiques and little things from different parts of the world. So this is really how he starts his collection of weird oddities, like these bizarre little tokens and trinkets and, you know, doodads and whatsamacallits. And I've got gadgets and gizmos aplenty. I've got who's it's and what's it's galore. Okay, sorry. In the summer of 1967, Berdella graduates from Chicago Falls High School. And after high school, he goes to art school in Kansas City. So dude wants to be an artist. This is in, it's the Kansas City Art Institute, and he's got the dream of um, becoming a college professor who teaches art. So he does well in his first year. Everything seems to be going well, but somewhere in his second year, he gets a little bit derailed. Um, He starts mixing with the wrong people. They give him some drugs to not only take, but sell. So now he's selling to other students. He starts abusing alcohol. And he starts torturing animals. Hello, big red flag. How many of these stories, if you've been following the podcast, where the perpetrator starts by torturing animals? Huge red flag. If you, if somebody in your life, you know, is torturing animals, big red flag. Keep an eye on them. It'll probably just lock them away because they're, they're not heading in a good direction at all. Um, so he's torturing animals and during two instances, he tortures a duck and a chicken in front of the class. And he says it's in the name of art. And in the third instance, he experiments with sedatives and tranquilizers on a dog. So as I said, classic early serial killer behavior. If you remember John Bunting from the bodies and barrels murders, he loved torturing dogs and things. So. Okay, at 19 years old, Berdella is arrested for attempting to sell meth to an undercover police officer. He's released after posting a $3,000 bond, uh, which is equivalent to $22,000 about these days, and would later plead guilty, and he's given a five-year suspended sentence. But one month after his first arrest, Berdella and two other students were arrested for possession of marijuana and LSD. This time, Berdella can't post the bond. 
and he spends five days in jail, although the charges against him and none of the other students, uh, all the charges were dropped because there was a lack of evidence. So, that brings us to the year of 1969, the year of love. Berdella drops out of Kansas City Art Institute after receiving his harsh criticisms uh, from the college administrators for killing and cooking the duck. So he basically, they're like, um, that's not art. And he's like, fuck you, I'm dropping out. And they're like, bye, Felicia. Don't let the door hit you on the way out, psycho. Um, so he chose to remain in Kansas City. I guess he had felt comfortable, was making a life there. And in September of 1969, he moves into the now infamous address of 4315 Charlotte Street. Dong, dong, dong. Berdella had been openly gay now for several years, and he began spending a lot of his free time with male prostitutes, drug addicts, petty criminals, and runaways. So how he was framing, and he was always a little bit older than he was a few years older. And as obviously as time goes on, the, you know, they were always in their early 20s, and he was just getting older as time went on. He, the way that he framed it, it was like, hey, I'm like a mentor to these people, and I am trying to lift them out of their dire straits, out of their, you know, circumstances where they're, you know, living hand to mouth and they're prostituting themselves and doing all these desperate things for money. I'm here to help them. You know, that's what he told himself. That's what he told other people. Um, so he would befriend them, and then he would try to free them from their drug addictions and their criminal lifestyles. Um, but my question is, like, I mean, befriend them how? Like, you need, he was going out and seeking these people. And as we've covered many times in these podcasts, it's, those are the vulnerable populations. Those are the people that are most at, at risk because of their risky behaviors, putting themselves in risky situations. And the fact that maybe nobody is going to miss them when they go. The police aren't going to be, you know, going crazy looking for them. Maybe they're not in touch with their families. So the very vulnerable communities, Berdella knows that. So he's going and befriending these people. So by the early 80s, many of his older friends have stopped any form of social contact with him because he spends a lot of time with the younger prostitutes and drug addicts and runaways. Um, and so the friends that are in his social group or his age are kind of like, um, you're freaking us out. You're being weird with these people. You're spending a lot of time with them and uh, we don't need to be around you anymore. So again, bye. Uh, he would later say that he was frustrated that his efforts to help correct the lives of the young people, the young vulnerable people that he was trying to help was not being appreciated. So this is heading in a bad direction because now he's mixing in these circles. Um, he's, I don't know if he's told himself, if he's believing his own lie that he's trying to help them, or if he's just told that lie to his neighbor so many times, maybe he's believing it too. Um, but he's starting to feel like his efforts with these guys is not being appreciated. So now we're going to start to turn a dark corner soon. Um, of course there was the sexual aspect to the relationships because he would establish control over these guys by loaning the money and allowing them to live with him rent free, which, okay. I'm put a little note here. Like, where's all the money coming from? I don't understand. Like, so this guy dropped out of, he's a college dropout you know, at this point, and he's about to get a job as like a chef or like as a cook, a line cook somewhere. But how much does that pay? And like, did you buy the house? Or are you just renting the house? 
And are you paying the more? How are you paying the mortgage slash rent? Like, I don't know where the, your money is coming from that you're able to support these guys in this house. You're not like independently wealthy. Okay, so his neighbors um, view Berdella as a flamboyant. They view him as a snobby guy. Although the house, uh, they say, was always a mess on the outside. It was just, there was leaves everywhere. There was just trash. It was just messy. Um, so you can imagine the inside. In the late 70s, though, to the mid-80s, Berdella was very involved in the community. Uh, South Hyde Park, he was part of the South Hyde Park Crime Prevention and Neighborhood Association. Uh, he was even the chairman of that. And he was part of the Neighborhood Watch Patrols, and um, he was very involved with fundraising events for the community. So, you know, under the cloak of kindness. So, during this time... At the Charlotte Street address, Berdella starts working as, as a short order cook, as I said, around Kansas. By the way, you remember Dennis Nilsson? Dennis Nilsson from a few podcasts ago? He was a cook too. So is there like a correlation? I'm just trying to, I'm trying to create a map of what a serial killer is. And I know everybody's an individual and everybody's different, but it seems like, it seems like there's a thread. There's a similarity like, okay, they're cooks. They torture animals, like slowly putting this puzzle piece together. Just red flags. Just red flags is all I'm saying. So to make extra money, he would also sell his weird artifacts, arts and antiques and everything that he was getting from his pen pals from around the world. Um, from Africa, Asia, South America. And he starts selling those antiques from out of his home. So both of his businesses basically are doing well. He's actually pretty successful as a, he becomes a senior cook at some renowned restaurants in Kansas, and he joins the local chef's association, and his art antiques roadshow business thing starts to take off too, um, and he's getting contracts at several international suppliers, and by 1981, he got so busy with the weird artifacts thing that he had to leave his work as a chef and concentrate full-time on his quote-unquote shop. So, he quickly outgrows his home shop and he opens a shop in Westport. Now, Westport is a district of Kansas City known to retailers. Um, they specialize in, like, interesting items that you can't find anywhere else in the city. So, just, if you want weird shit, you go to Westport. And Berdella had a shop located in the flea market area of Westport. So, he rented a space and he calls it Bob's Bazaar Bizarre. I know, it's stupid. Bob's B bazaar bizarre yeah it's dumb you can say it as many times as you want it's always going to be stupid uh sometimes he does well uh, but sometimes he has to sell his stuff at reduced prices or he has to steal and scavenge for shit to sell um and then sometimes he has to take on larger lodgers in his home so that he can make ends meet so why did you quit being a chef like, I feel like a chef is a steady paycheck, whereas this shop might keep you busy, but you're not making enough money to survive. Bad choices. Okay, at the flea market. Well, we've all made them. At the flea market, Berdella gets to know one of the store owners. He's got a booth that is close to Berdella. His name is Paul Howell, and he has a son, Jerry. Now, Jerry and his buddies would always tease Berdella for being so obviously gay, Although Berdella would later tell authorities that Jerry and his pals would prostitute themselves for cash. So whatever the story is there, we don't know. But Paul Howell and his son Jerry, they um, move from the flea market and they get a little shop on um, 39th and Main and they live above the shop there. But they stay in touch with Berdella, who occasionally gives them financial help. 
I don't know how, where's this money coming from again? Um, he supplies financial help to little Jerry, uh, who gets in scrapes with the law all the time. So this kid is trouble. Uh, young Jerry Howell, he's 19 years old. I think you know where this is going. On July 5th, 1984, Burdella is driving down the street and he crosses paths with Jerry Howell, the 19 year old. He's on his way to a dance contest in Merriam. Uh, Burdella slows down the car. He rolls down the window. He offers Jerry a ride to Miriam, but instead of driving him to Miriam, what do you think he does? Burdella takes Jerry to his home on Charlotte Street, uh, where he gives him alcohol, Valium, and sedatives, both in the car and at home until Jerry falls unconscious. I don't know how he administered alcohol, Valium, and sedatives in the car. I mean, obviously, okay, this guy is going to Miriam for a dance contest. If I notice that Burdella starts driving in another direction. I'll be like, dude, okay, I'm going to get out. What are you doing? Where are you going? I have to go the other direction. And then what? Like Burdella gave him a, what? Like a drink? Was it already ready to go? He's like, oh, here. Oh, just relax. Here, drink this. And then poor Jerry was started to feel woozy or something. And then he was incapacitated. I, I'm not sure how Jerry actually ends up at the Charlotte Street house, but he does, unfortunately. When he gets there, he falls unconscious. Burdella injects him with a heavy tranquilizer, and he ties him to the bed. Now, Jerry is bound and tortured for 28 hours, which is a really long time. This podcast times 28, let's say, is how long. I I can't even... The seconds must tick by so slowly in that instance. So for 28 hours, basically, he's drugged, he's tortured, he's raped... He's violated with different objects in his butt. And during all of this time, Jerry is begging to let to be let go, obviously. And he's asking Burdella, why? 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 Why are you doing this to me? Now, Burdella, uh, he's a very organized person. So he starts a logbook. And he documents exactly what he's giving and what he's doing to Jerry, including the physical and sexual torture. He even documents how Jerry begged him to stop and he'd ignore his pleas, he would taunt his victim, and he would threaten him. So, due to the heavy drugs that are pumped into his body and the gag that's in his mouth, Jerry loses consciousness and eventually he stops breathing. Burdella at first tries to perform CPR, but it doesn't help, and Jerry's lifeless body becomes Burdella's first murder. He drags Jerry's corpse to the basement where he hangs it over a cooking pot. He slashes the inner elbows and jugular vein and he leaves the body there to bleed out. The next day, he dismembers Jerry's body with a chainsaw and boning knives. Then he wraps sections in newspaper and trash bags, takes them to the curb to be collected, and watches as they're picked up and taken to the landfill. Almost a year later, on April 10th, 1985, 23-year-old Robert Sheldon comes knocking on Burdella's door. Now, Robert had stayed with Burdella before, and now he needed a place to crash again for a while. Robert is a responsible kid now. He's got his life pretty much in order. He just needs a place to crash. And although Burdella isn't attracted to him, he's frustrated at the world. He's angry at life, and he decides that he's going to take it out on Robert. So... When Burdella comes home after work to find Robert drunk, he takes the opportunity to overpower him. He drugs Robert with sedatives, ties him up in the second floor bedroom, holding him for three days. You thought 28 hours was long? During that time, he tortures him by swabbing drain cleaner into his left eye. 
inserting needles under his fingertips, binding his wrists with piano wire to permanently damage the nerves, and filling his ears with caulking to reduce the hearing. On April 15th, a workman arrives to the house. He needs to do repairs on the roof, and Berdella freaks out because he's afraid that the workman is going to see or hear Robert. So he throws a bag over Robert's head and tightens a rope around his neck. Robert is suffocated, and Berdella drags the body to the third-floor bathroom where he dissects it. Two months later, in June, Berdella finds Mark Wallace. Now, he's huddled in his work shed in the backyard during a thunderstorm, just trying to stay dry. Mark knows about the shed because he had once done yard work for Berdella in the past. Now, Berdella invites Mark into the house to dry off. Obviously, they know each other. But he notices how tense and depressed uh, Mark is. So, he offers Mark a sedative to calm down and relax. And he injects Mark, who is willing at this point, uh, with chlorpromazine, with chlorpromazine, that's it. While he's sedated, of course, Berdella decides to hold him captive, and he drags him upstairs to the second floor bedroom where Mark is tortured for almost 24 hours, including with alligator clips on his nipples, sending electric shocks, which I found interesting, because do you remember John Bunting from The Bodies and Barrels um, in Australia? He did the same thing. They had that electric machine where they were hooking it up and, and shocking people. I mean, this is really about torture. This is about, I want to inflict pain on you. Ugh. Okay, so then he flips Mark over and he starts sticking needles in different muscles in his back. An hour later, due to the drugs and the gag depriving him of oxygen, Mark dies. And Berdella notes the time of death at, as uh, in the logbook as 7 p.m. on June 23rd. So three months later, on September 26th, 1985, Berdella gets a call from James Ferris asking if he could stay with him for a while. Berdella decides immediately he's going to kidnap him and torture him and kill him. So he meets Mark at a bar. He drives him home. Then he crushes tranquilizers into some food. He gives him dinner. Those knock him out. Mark is dragged upstairs to the bedroom. He's tied to the bed and he's tortured for 27 hours. The torture includes electric shocks to, the, to his shoulder and testicles for up to five minutes at a time. Five straight minutes of electrical shocks. Five minutes. Look at a clock and time five minutes. That's really long. And there were makeshift acupuncture needles in his genitals. And Berdella's logbook reads, quote, Unable to sit up more than 10 to 15 seconds. And then another entry says, very delayed breathing. And then another entry says, 86. And this is referring to Mark's death. Because uh, Berdella later explains to investigators that 86 is a thing that he learned in like when he was a chef and a cook, which basically meant stop or abort or, you know, done. Um, nine months later, on June 17th, 1986, Berdella is walking through Kansas City's Liberty Memorial Park when he runs across Todd Stoops. Now, he's a 23-year-old drug addict and occasional sex worker who, with his wife, had stayed with Berdella in the past. So they chat for a while, and Berdella's basically like, hey, if you're hungry, I'll make you something to eat. Let's go back to my place. And since you need cash for drugs, I'll rent you out for an hour for sex, and you'll be good to go. So Stoops agrees, and they head to the Charlotte Street house. Berdella is very attracted to Todd, and Todd is basically just gave her pay. 
Um, and Berdella had been, he admits later that he had been very sexually frustrated by Todd, who wasn't reciprocating at all. So Berdella now had him captive and he was going to take him over. He keeps him alive for two weeks. Two weeks. You thought 24 hours was long? Gradually, of course, over the two weeks, Berdella increases the torture to make Todd a cooperative sex slave. He's given electric shocks in the eyes to blind him, and he injects drain cleaner in his larynx so that he can't scream to silence him. On June 27th, Berdella ruptures Todd's anal wall with his fist, causing bleeding and discharge. Oh, God. Berdella writes in his logbook near the end of the two weeks that he tried to feed Todd ice cream and soup, but nothing is staying down. He also writes that Todd is unable to breathe in a sitting position, and on July 1st, 1986... Todd dies from the ruptured anal wall that causes septic shock. A year later, almost, Berdella gets close to a 20-year-old named Larry Pearson, who gets chatty with him at his shop at the flea market. So Larry ends up moving in with Berdella, doing odd jobs around the house as payment for rent. And at first, Berdella isn't going to capture Larry. But he changes his mind after bailing him out of prison on June 23rd and hearing how Larry was joking about robbing gay men in Wichita, Kansas. So... That night, Berdella gets Larry drunk and injects him with chlorpromazine and brings him down to the basement where he binds his hands with rope, injects drain cleaner into his throat, and brings down the electric transformer. About five days of torture in the basement and Larry had become so cooperative that Berdella, as a reward for good behavior, brings Larry up to the second floor bedroom where he promises to inject inflict less pain so long as Larry cooperates with the physical and sexual abuse. He keeps Larry alive for six weeks, torturing him and raping him. Six weeks. My God. Larry even teaching himself not to move too much while he slept because he doesn't want to piss off Berdella and then feel the repercussions of that. So, after six weeks, obviously, Larry can't take it anymore and he bites down really hard onto Berdella's penis I mean Berdella you're you're putting your penis into a captive person's mouth obviously somebody is going to bite your penis off or try to I mean at some point fucking idiot okay so Larry whoa what do you think Bird how do you think Berdella takes uh, Larry biting down on his penis not so well Larry is killed by being hit over the head repeatedly with a tree limb uh, suffocates him with a bag and a ligature. Then he drives himself to the hospital to take care of his penis. At the hospital, Berdella files an assault report while be being treated for the bite on his dick, causing a serious laceration. You're going to file an assault report on somebody you know is already dead. Obviously, he's just trying to cover his tracks to make it look like, hey, but then also you're filing an assault re report on the person who actually did bite your dick. So when the police go to investigate, hey, where is this person? We can't find him. When they do find him, they're going to know that he was with you. Back at home with a bandaged dick, Larry's body is dismembered in the basement and his head is stored in a plastic bag in the freezer before being buried in the backyard. Yeah, I wonder why he kept the head. Maybe he just wanted to really extra, like, you fucking bit my dick, and I'm going to cut your head off, and I'm going to keep it around for a while, just to remind myself that I got the last word with you, even though you bit my dick. That's my guess.
Nine months after Berdella picks up Larry from the park on March 29, 1988, he runs into 22-year-old Christopher Bryson at 1 a.m., whom he solicits for sex and lures back to his home on Charlotte Street. Once at the home, Berdella knocks Chris out with an iron bar. Like, motherfucker. He's, like, injecting the other people with drugs, and then he hits this one over the head. Like, now he's just getting out of control. And he, obviously, he gets tied to the bed. He tortures him the same way he tortures his other victims with drain cleaner to the throat. I can't drain cleaner in the throat. You know how many warnings are on the bottles of these cleaning products? Can you imagine somebody, first of all, the poke of the needle and then the injection of the, it would just be burning the, how do you know that that's not going to kill somebody? Well, I mean, all these guys are dying, so obviously you don't know what you're doing. You're just torturing them. Um, he's sticking syringes all over his body. He's giving him electric shots. He's giving him electric shocks and he's swabbing his eyes with ammonia saying the only things you need to think about are you, me and this house. And he says, quote, you did not choose to be here, but you are for you to survive being here and for you to, you know, make it, it could either be rough or it could be easy. If I grow to like you and to trust you, then I could do special things for you, such as buy you cigarettes, pick up a movie on the way home from work, and so forth. Remember Blockbuster Video? You had to go to the video store, and then you would walk in, and you would browse around, and then you would stand in front of all these like boxes, and then you would pick them up, and you would read the back, and then your mom would be like, what about this one? And you're like, you would be holding a couple and just be like, what about the, did we see this one? I don't Remember that? What a weird, that seems like another planet, another world. Um, he says, don't try to fight me or you'll just get more of what you had earlier. You see, what you got is nothing compared to what you could have. So Berdella is showing him Polaroids of guys because he's been taking pictures all along. Um, and the guys look either dead or lifeless. And he explains to them that these are the guys who try, he tried to collect as sex slaves, but that didn't work out. He tells Chris he has no intention of ever letting him go. And that if he pisses him off, he will increase the torture and or just kill him. Of course, that speech puts it into Chris's heads to cooperate for leniency, which actually works. The torture is lessened, even if the sexual abuse stays the same. But Berdella begins to trust Chris, and he gives him little breaks, like tying his, tying his hands in front of his body instead of behind his back, which is more comfortable and better for circulation. He gives him TV privileges, and he even gives him cigarettes. But he warned Chris by saying, I've gotten this far with other people before, and they're dead now because of mistakes they made. So Chris, of course, is the brave man who escapes at the beginning of this podcast episode. When he's questioned at the scene by four police officers, Chris says that he had been hitchhiking when abducted by Berdella, who had kidnapped, raped, and tortured him for four days before he escaped. Chris is naked except for a dog collar. He has a broken foot. He's got red swollen eyes and scars and welts all over his body. He's taken to the Menorah Medical Center for treatment with two cops stationed outside the Berdella house who radio the Kansas City Police Department to get a search warrant for the property. Minutes later, Berdella arrives home from his errands and the police arrest him and bring him to the station. He refuses, of course, to allow them entry into his house because they don't have a warrant. And in Missouri, the police have 20 hours in which to charge someone with specific charges before they have to let them go. So the clock is ticking. The police are frantically searching the Berdella house. Uh, 
They find a cluttered pack rat mess of a place with bizarre items like vertebrae and skulls. They would need to be examined for authenticity. They don't know what's real. They don't know what's what's an artifact or what's real, what's not. They also find a grave-shaped area in the basement floor. And they knew that other young men had gone missing. But without the bodies, they couldn't prove that Burdella was actually guilty. Meanwhile, at the station, the police show photos of Burdella to Chris, who obviously points him out as the one who kidnaps, tortures, and rapes him in the bedroom on the second floor. So now they have enough to hold Burdella in custody with warrants. Burdella was initially formally charged with one count of felonious restraint, one count of assault, and seven counts of forcible sodomy. With Burdella safely put aside, the police continue to search the house and grounds. So a task force is put together with 11 detectives and one sergeant to focus just on this case because they know it's big. So the task force looks deep into Burdella's past. They discover that he's known to hang out with young male prostitutes and that he's a guy who preys on the vulnerable. He was also known, he's also known, this is like a known thing, that he drugs and tortures young men because a lot of the prostitutes refuse to be a client of his because in prostitute circles, everybody knows that this guy um, drugs you and rapes you. So it's like a known thing. Um, and because of his reputation, Burdella was a main suspect in the disappearance of two men whose personal items are found in the house namely Jerry Howell and James Ferris. Now, Burdella had even brought, was even brought in for questioning on both cases, but he denied knowing anything about them, and the police put him under surveillance, but of course they find nothing. This is just another case of, like, they had the guy before, they had the guy, the right guy in custody before, and they let him go. That's happened so many times. Bruce MacArthur. Um, investigators discovered the bedroom on the second floor was found to have burnt ropes attached to the posts at the foot of the bed. And in the room, they found the electrical transformer plugged into the wall with wires leading to the bed. They find a metal tray containing syringes and small bottles, apparently containing prescription drugs. There's swabs. Eye drops are also close to the bed. They find an iron pipe, lengths of rope, leather belts. The posts on the bed are extremely worn, like like it had restraints and somebody's been struggling to get out and it sort of like made these grooves into the posts. In the backyard, they notice freshly dug earth. And at this point, of course, the media find out about what's going on and they swarm the house. And this is, of course, making life harder for the police. As the digging begins in the backyard, under the glare of the media lights, they find a skull. But not just like a skull skull. They find a skull with hair still attached to it and soft tissue. So inside the house, detectives use luminol, which we know um, when you shine the luminol, you put luminol and then you shine the light, you can see where blood is. And there's blood all over the basement. So the search also uncovers several human vertebrae scarred by both hacksaw and knife marks stowed in a hallway in the house with several human teeth shoved in envelopes. There's a hacksaw and a miter saw. I mean, this is a death house. This is like a torture. This is a horror torture death. This guy's house makes saw look like kindergarten. There's chainsaws. The chainsaw has bloodstains, flesh, and pubic hair on it. 334 Polaroid pictures are found and 34 snapshot prints. Remember, you had to print photos. Like, you'd have to take pictures and then you'd have to go to the photo the photo mat, the photo place, and then drop off the film. And you'd have to come back. You'd have to leave it there, leave, 
and then come back and then pay for it. And then it's all printing in the front window. So I don't know how he's printing these photos. I mean, it's photos of guys that are like chained up with like needles sticking out of their neck and electric things on their nipples. And nobody at the photo place thought that was weird. So included in the shots are Chris and other men. They're both dead and alive. And the investigation finds restraints and sexual devices and porn and a book of narcotics. And on a chest of drawers in one bedroom, the officers discover Berdella's torture logs that he kept for each victim. So, I mean, it's all laid out for it. I mean, everything is there. In the logs, as you know, are copious amounts of information written in some like childlike code where police have to decipher. For example, there's like BF, which represented anal penetration with his penis, while effing F stood for finger. And there's a dozen references to F in various forms. Like there's carrot F, cucumber F, which obviously we can put two and two together there. The logs included methods of torture and frequency and names, and they quickly realized that the logs directly correspond to dates that young men went missing. Along with several newspaper clippings from the Kansas City Star regarding a missing young man named Jerry Howell and both a wallet and a driver's license belonging to the missing person named James Ferris. So, he did it. Bum, bum, bum. As the search for evidence continued, it's hard to make fact from fiction. He had so much crap from his antiques and oddities stores and so much clutter that it's hard to decipher the real from the fake stuff. And worse than that, there's still no bodies. But I mean, they have all these items. They have the logs. They have everything, but they don't have bodies, which actually is a problem, even though they found all this shit at his house. So while he's at the Jackson County Jail, Berdella is isolated for his own safety because sexual abusers, especially gay ones, are often targeted by other prisoners. So people around him say that he seems remorseful and in denial. He doesn't talk to the media or the police, and he confesses nothing. People from the community, of course, know him as being eccentric, but being very involved in community matters. So they don't even believe the news. They blame the police for framing him. Can you believe it? No one wanted to believe a monster lived among them. Well, I can't blame them for that. With no bodies to prove his murder and friends and family coming to his defense saying he's just eccentric, maybe he's a little condescending, it was very mixed messages. So their only hope for the police was to try to identify the men in the numerous Polaroids found on the property, including shots of someone sodomizing the victims. So basically, there's Polaroids and pictures of Berdella sodomizing his victims, but his face is never in the pictures. So what the police do to identify who the person is that's doing the sodomizing in the pictures, they actually go to Berdella, they make him strip, and they make him strike the poses that are in the photos, and then they take pictures, and then they match the body parts, like... What does your arm look like in this position? Does your belly hang this way when you're doing this? And, of course, this is completely humiliating for a control freak like Berdella. But, of course, it does help to identify that it is him that's in the photos. And to help identify the victims in the Polaroids, James Ferris's wife and Jerry Howell's dad, Paul, come in to identify their dead loved ones. There are tons of names found scrawled in Berdella's logbook, uh, and detectives try tracking them down. And they do find one young man named Freddie Kellogg, who lived with Berdella on and off during the early 80s. He tells police how young male prostitutes were allowed to stay at the house, 
if they allowed themselves to be injected with drugs and raped. And also, Freddy tells detectives that Berdella told him he could remain at the house so long as he was able to recruit young guys to come to parties at the Charlotte Street address where Berdella would drug them and have sex with them. So, Freddy is also able to identify three other guys in the Polaroids, Todd Stoops, Robert Sheldon, and Larry Wayne Pearson. In late April, the skull found inside Berdella's closet is identified via dental x-rays obtained via subpoena from the University of Kansas Medical Center, and the skull belongs to Robert Sheldon. And investigators discover that one of the photographs released to the media was Larry Wayne Pearson. And when they check his dental records and compared the skull found in Berdella's backyard, it's a match, and Berdella is formally charged with the murder and dismemberment of Larry Wayne Pearson in July. So, on July 22nd, 1988, a grand jury, jury formally indicts Berdella for the murder of Larry Wayne Pearson. The following month, he's arraigned and pleaded guilty before Judge Alvin C. Randall to first-degree murder. On the stand, Berdella says, quote, I put a plastic bag over Larry Pearson's head and tied it with a rope and allowed him to suffocate. When asked if he performed this act deliberately and with malice aforethought, Berdella simply stated, yes. A second guilty plea is submitted before the court on August 24th, getting Berdella another life sentence without parole for the one charge of forcible sodomy against our hero who actually escaped, Christopher Bryson, and another seven years pertaining to one count of felonious restraint against Bryson on this date. So basically he pleads not guilty to the remaining five murder charges, but his lawyers tell him he can avoid the death penalty if he confesses in graphic detail as to whom he killed and what he subjected each victim to, how he killed each victim, and what he had done with their bodies. These confessions were given between December 13th and December 15th, 1988. In the court, he seems to enjoy taking control of the situation and, he, and explaining in detail in front of the victim's loved ones how he tortured six young men. I mean, the whole thing is pretty disgusting. And, and by him coming clean about this, he's, they're showing him leniency. They're saying, you can avoid the death penalty if you confess to these things. But he's basically, he knows he's caught. I mean, this is, so he's making like lemonade out of lemons. He's like, well, I'm already caught. So I'm just going to sit in front of this audience of the victim's families and just describe in detail exactly what I did to them, which he's, he's enjoying doing. You know, he talks about dismembering the bodies with chainsaws and knives, how he put the bodies in the tub, making precise cuts to drain them, and then packaging them and putting them out in the trash and watching them being taken away from the curb. Um, he did claim that he tried to prevent the victims from developing any form of malnutrition or infections by giving them antibiotics and nu nutrients intravenously. But of course, that didn't help. And I mean, like, Oh, okay, bravo. Well, thanks. Oh, so you are a hero. Like, um, and although police extensively searched for the remains of Berdella's victims, the confession Berdella provided to investigators confirmed the dismembered bodies of all six of his victims had been stowed in trash bags, taken to the landfill, and you can't find them at that point. So the judge finds him guilty of six counts of murder and sentences him to two life sentences without parole. He agrees to psychiatric evaluation. <laughs> yeah, you think? And he shows the real him during these sessions. He thinks he's a really important person 
who loves control. He wanted sex slaves, and he didn't mean to kill them, and he refers to them as play toys, which basically they weren't even human to him. He's diagnosed as suffering from a depressive personality disorder, and he's also diagnosed as a sexual sadist who gains extreme sexual excitement from the humiliation, pain, and torture to which he had subjected his victims. His victims, of course, were all young men, no education, they sold drugs, they sold their bodies, and in Burdella's eyes, they were beneath him. So he thinks he's a good, upstanding guy who just happened to do some bad things. He hates that his name is smeared in the media. Basically, he's a narcissist. He has no empathy, he's delusional, he's worried about his self-image. Um, while he's in prison, I love this part of it, a local millionaire buys the Burdella house on Charlotte Street. He destroys it, and he sells the property to surrounding neighbors. Yes. I mean, it's a house of horrors. It's a house, a literal house of horrors. In prison, Berdella complains that the media demonized him unfairly in the press, and he tries to reinstate his image as a sensitive citizen who had, quote, made mistakes. Um, made mistakes. Painting your wall the wrong shade of burgundy is a mistake. What you did is murder. Fucktard. He lodges several complaints with the prison officials saying that he, that they know that he has high blood pressure, but they are not giving him his heart medication. And get this, at 2 p.m. on October 8th, 1992, Burdella complains to prison staff of heart pains. He's taken from his cell to the infirmary. The staff there determines his heart is unstable. They call an ambulance and Burdella is taken to the hospital in Columbia, Missouri, where he's pronounced dead from a heart attack at 3.55 p.m. at 43 years old, to which the judge sarcastically said, couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. You know what? I think they killed him. They did. They killed him. What they did was they gave him a plea deal. They're like, hey, Berdella, you can avoid the death penalty if um, you confess to all these murders. You tell us how you did it, where it was, how, what you did, blah, blah, blah. Which he's like, okay, great. I'm not going to get the death penalty. But they knew he needed his heart medication for his heart. So all they had to do was get him to confess to everything, lock him away, and then withhold the medication. I am convinced that is what they did. And I think it's great. I think that is so smart. Good for them. I honestly, that's what they did. This is what they did. I love it. What a twist. It's such a fuck you. And good, because this is such a fucking criminal that it's like you don't get to have your rights and privileges are revoked, sir. Like, no, you're done. So for them to pull that, and I, I swear that is what happened. I mean, come on. They knew he needed his medication and they didn't give it to him. And then he dies of a heart attack. That's awesome. I mean, that's so twisted. Oh, good for them. All right. Well, he's dead. So that ends the gruesome and graphic story of the Kansas City Butcher, a.k.a. The Collector, a.k.a. Robert Berdella. I mean, the only thing I have to say about the story is basically it's sad how vulnerable communities are just underserved and they're just not taken. I mean, their safety is never a priority. Um, they're just kind of the underbelly. Um, you know, these are just desperate people doing desperate things and trying to get by. They're not bad people. And then they fall through the cracks and they're taken advantage of by 
people like Berdella um, so easily, and they just pick them up. Ronald Dominique, you remember the Bayou, down in the Bayou. What was he, the Bayou Slasher, Strangler? Um, same thing. He was picking off the young, vulnerable, black, homeless, you know, community down there. And, you know, it's, it's, it's easy pickings. It's low-hanging fruit for these guys. So that's sad about that. But he's dead. Yay! <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. I will see you in the next episode of True Gay Crime. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to find the True Gay Crime Facebook page and follow us on Instagram at True Gay Crime. And we'd love to hear from you. Do you have an LGBTQ crime story from your city? You can send your story to truegaycrime at gmail.com and I'll share it on a future episode of the show. Did you know you can subscribe, rate, and review True Gay Crime on Apple Podcasts? It would mean everything to me if you did because it helps me create content you like and it lets Apple know to share it with more people. Thank you for listening. And remember, always look behind you, lock your doors, tell someone where you're going, and look out for each other. Why can't we all just get along?